Can we give the worship a round of applause, man? That was awesome, right? Let's go. Let's go. I can't wait to preach, man. I'm looking forward to this. So listen, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Will Franco, and uh, I'm one of the pastors here at the church, and we are so glad you are here visiting us here today. We started Tri Village for people just like you. And so I would love for you to do two things for me if you're willing. First thing is make sure to fill out the Connect card, that, that little yellow card that was in your seat when you arrived. If you could fill that out, turn it in at the welcome desk, we would give you. There's a gift there for you. But then not only that, but then we could also be praying for you if you have any prayer requests. We would just love to know um, that you are here visiting us. Sometimes with a, with a church this size, it's hard to see and greet everybody. And so we're just really, really glad that you're here. The other thing is I'm going to be standing over by the steps. And so I would love to get a chance to shake your hand on the way out. So for some of you, that's good news. And some of you, that's really bad news. Like, why is this dude standing here? Uh, well, you're going to say hi either way. Okay, so um, no, I'm kidding. You could use the elevator. Uh, so... Uh, so um, so we're so glad you're here. And if you are new here, we're in a, uh, not in the middle. We just started a series entitled The Upside Down Kingdom. And here's what we're doing in this series. We are going verse by verse, section by section through the Sermon on the Mount. Now, for those of you who are new to church, you're like, what is the Sermon on the Mount? Well, the Sermon on the Mount is by far the most famous speech, sermon, message ever given. And it was given by Jesus Christ in Matthew 5 through 7. And so what we're going to do for the next few months, actually up until Christmas, we're going to go verse by verse, section by section through the Sermon on the Mount. Now, the reason why we have entitled this series Upside Down Kingdom is because we believe that there's two kingdoms. And actually, Augustine talks about that in the city of God. He says there's the city of God and there's the city of man. And these two kingdoms are radically different. So we have been used to and accustomed to living in the kingdom of man. And so what Jesus is doing here is he's telling us about the the kingdom of God. And what we see is that the kingdom of God is radically different from the kingdom of man. It's so different that it's upside down. That what we think is right side up in the kingdom of man is actually upside down in the kingdom of God. And so that's why we've named this series The Upside Down Kingdom. Now, for those of you who were here last week, we began by looking at the Beatitudes, the first 12 verses of Matthew chapter 5. And we looked at what does it look like to be a follower of Jesus. And so if you didn't get a chance to listen to that, that's up on the website. But this morning, we are going to be in Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 through 16. So if you have your Bibles, I want you to go ahead and turn there. And what Jesus is going to be doing here is he's going to be saying, okay, now in light of who you are called to be, the Beatitudes, for the rest of the sermon, so the next two and a half chapters, he is going uh, to explain to us, unpack for us what it means to look like a disciple of Jesus? What are the implications of the Beatitudes if we are actually living them out? So Matthew 5, 13 through 16 is the first implication of the gospel in the life of a believer. So here's what I want you to do if you are able. I'm going to read from the passage, but I would love for you to stand up as we read from God's word. If you're seated, go ahead and stand up if you are able. And we are going to be reading from Matthew 5, 13 through 16. Here's what it says. You are the of the earth. And for those of you who are new, we do a lot of uh, uh, dialogue here at the church, okay? So it's okay if you want to say amen. We we allow that here, okay? Um, Actually, we expect it. No, I'm kidding. So, so, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. It's the word of the Lord. You may be seated. So this morning, what we're going to be doing is we are going to be looking at these, at these four verses that are found in Matthew 5, 13 through 16. And what we're going to do is we are going to ask and answer three questions that I think this, this passage begs us to ask. Like it actually de- almost demands us to ask. The first question we're going to look at and answer this morning is, what must we do? So in this passage, we are called to do something. And we're going to begin by asking the question, what is it that we are called to do? Then the second question we're going to ask this morning, and it kind of gives you the trajectory of where we're headed, is why don't we do it? Why don't we actually do it? And then the third question will be, how can we ever do it? So what must we do? Why don't we do it? And how can we ever do it? Okay? So we're going to begin by asking the question, what must 
we do. And what Jesus does here in this passage is he tells us something to do. Verse 13, he says, you are the salt of the earth. Then in verse 14, he says, you are the light of the world. So, so in this passage, Jesus is telling us something about who we are if we are believers, if we are disciples, if we are followers of him. He says, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. So the question is, what does that actually mean, right? That's, that seems like a very tweetable thing, but, but what does it actually mean to be salt and to be light? And I think in order for us to understand that, we have to go back before we can go forward. We have to look at what salt meant back then, not what it means today. What light meant back then, not what it means today. So let's begin by looking at salt. What does Jesus mean when he says that we are the salt of the earth? Now, here's what's interesting about Jesus' day and even before Jesus' day. Salt was a very, very valuable commodity. I would actually argue that we live in a day that this day and age is probably the day and age where salt is least valuable. And salt's pretty valuable to us because we use salt for a lot. And yet in Jesus' day and even before Jesus' day, salt was an extremely valuable commodity. So much so, in fact, that there was a, a, a time in ancient Rome where salt was actually used as salary to pay the soldiers. That's how valuable salt was. It was used as a salary. Actually, the word salary, the, the Latin root of the word salary is salt because it was used as a salary to pay people. That's why the phrase that he isn't worth his salt, that's where it comes from. It was a soldier who didn't do his job and he wasn't worth the salt that they were trying to give him. That's what, that's what it means, right? So when someone says he isn't worth his salt, they're making reference back to that day in ancient Rome. So salt was a very valuable commodity, so much so that what, one of the things you would do, it, that if you, were, if you were making a covenant, there was different levels to covenants. The higher the covenant, the most likely there would be an exchange of salt because of how valuable salt was. Actually, there's, there's a spot in the Old Testament where it says that God made a salt covenant with, I forgot who the individual was, but he makes a salt covenant with someone in the Old Testament. So even the Jews were part of this custom, okay? So when Jesus uses the word salt, Everyone in his audience would have automatically thought a valuable commodity, something that is extremely valuable, okay? Now, when we think of salt, we think of, you know, you're at a barbecue and, and there's, there's this awesome corn on the cob on your plate and you take a bite, you're like, oof, that's not good. You know what this needs? It needs salt, right? That's what we think of salt. We think of a barbecue, right? Or we think of there's ice in my driveway, let me throw some ice out, some salt out, and it's dealt with. That's usually the only times we think of salt. But in those days, salt was used totally different. I'm not saying that it wasn't used for seasoning, but, but more than that, the reason why salt was so important was because in those days, there was no refrigerators. So what you would do is whenever you would go to the market and buy meat, you would have to get salt and you would have to rub the salt into the meat in order to keep the meat from decaying. As a matter of fact, just between the services, there's a, there's a guy who comes to our church, his name's Bo, and uh, he's a deer hunter, and he brought me uh, deer meat. And he was like, it's so crazy that you brought, up, you brought up salt. He's like, because this meat that I just gave you has tons of salt on it to keep it from going bad, right? And, and that's the only way I'll ever get close to a deer because God knows I'm not hunting, okay? Like, I avoid outdoors at all costs. Um, and I talk too much so the deers would never come by us. Like, he, he literally said, he was like, uh, I'll take you duck hunting, bro. You talk too much. Like, that's what he said. So anyways, so by my chair, I literally have uh, uh, deer meat that is literally uh, has, has had salt permeated, pushed into it in order to keep it from going bad. That's how salt was used in Jesus' day. It would keep the meat from going bad. Now think about it. If Jesus calls us salt, then what is he saying about the world we live in? The world we live in is meat that is going bad. Right? That's, that's the default thing. If, if we're salt and that's the purpose of salt, then that tells you just as much about the meat than it does about the salt. Here's the thing. H.G. Wells was, uh, was this writer who was very well known early on in the, 19th, in, in the beginning of the 1900s. And at the beginning of the 1900s, he wrote this book about the hope of humanity. He was talking about the, the glory of hum humanity and how the, the United States and, and Great Britain were only gonna go from strength to strength and it was gonna be this amazing revival because, because humanity just kept flourishing in the early 1900s. The same guy, H.G. Wells, after World War I and World War II, wrote a totally different book about how the, uh, the hopelessness of humanity. Because everything looked great before the two world wars. World wars. And then after, the, the, after that happened, he's like, wait a second, never mind, never mind. 
I thought things were better than what they actually were. Okay? So here's what this tells us. The world we live in, even with all the technology, even with all the medical advancements, the world that we live in is going from bad to worse. And if you think it's bad, it's only going to get worse. That's what Scripture teaches. And so the world we live in is the meat. We as Christians are the salt, and we are to slow down the decaying process. That's one of the things that you and I are called to do. So the question is, what does that actually look like? What does it look like for me to slow down the decay in my workplace, in my classroom, uh, in my neighborhood, in my cul-de-sac? Like, wh what does it actually look like for me to do that? Well, I'll give you a couple of examples. One example you guys have heard already, when, when, at least for those of you who've been coming to Tri-Village for a while, when my wife and I first got married, we, we've been married now nine years, and when we first got married, we moved down to Louisville, Kentucky. We're originally from this area, but we moved down to Louisville in order for me to go to seminary at Southern Seminary. So we go there, and when we get there, we had no money, and so we had to start working. And so I began by working at Chick-fil-A. Now, Chick-fil-A is great, right? God's holy chicken. Like, that's, 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 Chick-fil-A is awesome. The problem is I gained, like, 32 pounds, right? Like, and I, I just got married. I had to look good. It wasn't working out with my expectations, or Lily's expectations. They're super high. So, so, but that's another, that's another sermon. Uh, so anyway, so so, so, so I was gaining too much weight. Chick-fil-A was, was great, but it wasn't great because of how it was affecting me. So I decided, you know what, I think maybe I should switch it up. So I decided to work in insurance. And so I found this company called AIG. And what it did is, is it sold insurance to people who were in the union. You would go to their house and you would sell them on benefits that only union workers had access to. And so I started doing the training. And just like any salesman job, they, they, they told you about all the commission you can make if, if you do it right, right? And so I was looking at my puny uh, uh, paycheck from Chick-fil-A and I'm like, man, I'm, we're about to make bank. This is awesome. You know, I'm great at like, you know, talking to people. I love this, right? Well, here's the problem. I couldn't make any sale. Like I was really, really bad at it. And, and it was like about a month or month and a half before I even got someone to sign up for one of the benefits. So I get someone to sign up and I'm so excited. Like I'm like literally trying to speed it up. I'm like, don't change your mind, lady. Like, come on, let's do this. Right, right. Yeah. Sign here, sign here, sign here, sign here. So we come, I, go, I go to work the next day, and I'm looking forward to getting at least $1,500 based on what I had sold the lady. When I get there, my supervisor, he overlooks, he looks at all the paperwork. He finds out that there was one document she didn't sign. There was only one document she didn't sign. And because of that, I wasn't going to get paid. So I was going to have to go back and talk to the lady. The problem is many people would get regret, like buyer's remorse. So almost every time you went back, the person would change their mind. So I'm like, ah, dang it, man. Like, what am I going to do? I'm like, well, I guess, you know, I got to go back. Well, my supervisor, after reviewing the, the, the paperwork, he's like, you know what? I got an idea. He's like, I want you to go outside and I'll take care of it. When I come back, what he had done was he had forged the lady's signature on the one line that was missing. And he wrote it perfectly. Like, I, I wouldn't even have noticed. And he's like, well, there you go. There's your $1,500. And I literally told him, I'm like, I can't take that. Like, I can't. God knows I need it, but I can't take it because... She didn't sign that. And literally what happened was we got to the place where he, 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 it got so awkward that I ended up leaving his office. I ended up quitting that day. The, the boss of the company, the, the owner of the company, or one of the owners calls me and he's like, hey, so, you know, you're a great employee. What happened? Like, we thought you were, you were, you were liking it. And I told him. And I, I didn't want to get the guy in trouble, but he kept asking and digging. So I told him what he did. And the guy's like, oh, that's it? Oh, okay, well, sorry to lose you, buddy. Click. I guarantee you that guy didn't even get a talking to. See, but in that moment, I had a decision. Do I make the $1,500 that we desperately need, or do I behave like salt in my workplace? My father-in-law and I, yesterday, we were driving somewhere. Um, we were in the car together, and he told me a story about how when he was in sales, um, it was a really rough time during that time. He was getting paid like $25,000. That was his salary, and that was the only salary they were getting at the time, and they were really struggling. And he was in sales, you know how it is, the salary is lower because the commission is what, where you make your money. And so he said that they had set this goal up for all the employees. They said, listen, if by the end of this quarter, you meet with 50 people who already have a policy with us and sell them on more things, just 50 people, we will give you $2,000 extra at the end of the quarter, right? Or I think it was the end of the quarter. And so he had met with 49 people when the deadline came up, 49. And they were struggling financially. And his boss came up to him and was like, hey, listen, Ed, so uh, you needed 50, and you have 49. And he's like, but you can have 50 if you want. And he's like, 
what do you mean? He's like, well, you can have 50. Like, well, I can, I'm the guy that controls it. Let's just say you have 50. Like, it's one person. And he's like, no, no, you know, I'm good. He's like, Ed, you made 50. He's like, no, I didn't. I didn't make 50. And it, it, it became super awkward with them, but he ended up not doing it. He settled for 49. And in a time where they were making only 25 grand in salary, $2,000 would have made a major difference. And he never took the money because he didn't make 50. That's what it means to be salt in your workplace. That's what it means to be salt in your classroom. That's what it means to be salt in, in, in your neighborhood. You have to be. It, it, there, there's, there's this role that God has put us in, and our job is to preserve. Our job is to keep things from decaying. Did we change, did my, did my father-in-law and I change those, co- the, that, those companies forever? No. But what we did, at least temporarily, is we slowed down the decay. We were an, an, an agent of preservation. That's what Jesus is saying we have to do. Now think about this. Think about what salt does. Salt doesn't just preserve me. There's a, there's a couple other things that salt does that I'm not, there's commentators that say this is kind of what Jesus is going after as well. Another thing that salt does is salt makes you thirsty, right? Like, like, that's why people can be on a raft in the middle of the ocean and die from thirst because you can't drink salt water. It actually makes the dehydration worse. One of the things that we do when we live in a compelling way, when we actually live out our faith, when we are salt wherever God puts us, is we actually start to cause the people around us to thirst for the gospel. Like, they're like, wait, wait, wait. There's something different about you. I don't know what that is, but I need to figure out what it is. Because if I can figure it out, then I can be more like you. So sometimes what we do in our behavior is our behavior can actually cause people to thirst after the gospel if we are behaving in light of the Beatitudes that we looked at last week. There's something compelling about it. Now, for some people, remember he says, blessed are those who are persecuted. Paul says that that our behavior is a sweet aroma to some and is the the aroma of death to others. So some people aren't going to like it. Some people are going to persecute you. But there has to be a reaction based on how you're living. They either are getting closer to Jesus or they're getting further from Jesus. Either their heart is softening or their heart is hardening. Actually, before the, 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 the two services this morning, at sea, one of our volunteers, she prayed and she said, Lord, I pray that you would soften the hearts that need to be softened and that you would harden the hearts that need to be hardened. Everyone thinks that God only works when hearts are softened. But God is just as much behind, behind the hardening as he is behind the softening. That's what the Puritans say, that the same sun that melts the wax hardens the clay. So some of you have been coming here for weeks, for months, for years, and your heart's just getting harder and harder and harder and harder. That's just what the Lord's decided to do with you. I can't change that. And for those of you who don't think that's cap- possible, just look at age, uh, Pharaoh in the, in the Exodus. Every time he heard God's truth, his heart became harder and harder and harder. And God was just as much behind that as he was in every other part of Scripture. So what do we have to do? We have to cause people to say, why are you different and how can I be a part of that? Why are you different? I, I shared a story in the first service about, uh, I came across this story maybe a few months ago about a Christian business owner who had almost everyone in his, in his office was, uh, were, were non-believers. They weren't followers of Jesus. They were either atheists or were, you know, in, in other religions. And, and he said that, he told the story once and, and, and talked about how the Lord ended up convicting him. He said there was per- someone in his job, in his, in his workplace, one of his employees, who after years of working with him, came to know Jesus. Like he placed his faith in Jesus and came to a saving knowledge of him, Right? So this guy comes back to the office and he's sharing with people all that Jesus had done and, and how he couldn't believe it and he was so grateful. So he goes up to his boss and tells his boss and almost immediately his boss starts thinking, man, it must have been because of my wonderful example. Like, I, I, you know, I, I'm, I'm such a faithful Christian and I pray for my employees and, and I'm just a, a straight up guy that meets all the standards. In their conversation, the employee who had just become a Christian finds out that his boss was a Christian. He didn't know the guy was a Christian. He never knew. In all the years he worked under him. And here's what the guy told him, the guy who had just came to know the Lord. He said, actually, you're one of the reasons why I didn't consider Christianity earlier. Because I thought you were doing it in your own strength, and I thought, what do I need Jesus for if my boss can do it by himself? Think about that. The business owner that thought he was having this amazing impact on his people was the very one keeping his people from Jesus because he was doing it what seemed like in his own strength and never gave the reason for why he was behaving the way he was behaving. It wasn't the gospel, it was moralism. And he's like, well, why do I need Jesus if you don't need Jesus? 
How many people are watching us and thinking the same thing? Okay? So, so that's what salt does. Salt is, is also meant to produce uh, thirst. But here's the last thing I'll say about salt, and I think this is so important. Salt doesn't just uh, uh, preserve. It doesn't just produce thirst. But the other thing that salt does is it makes things better. And here's what I mean. Let's go back to the corn on the cob. You're at the barbecue. It's July 4th. You have your corn on the cob, and you need salt, right? When you get salt and you put it on the corn on the cob and you finish eating it, at the end of eating the corn on the cob, you don't say, man, that salt was good. <laughs> that was some good salt right there. Give me Morton. Morton, let me call Morton right up. Hey, Morton's, dude, your salt, woof. It was off the chain today. When, when you put salt on something and you're done eating it, you don't end up thinking about the salt. The salt enhances the thing that you put it on, okay? Now, now follow with me here. One of the things that we are to do is since we are the salt of the earth, we are to, by our presence, enhance the things by putting salt on it that everyone wrestles with. So, so when, when, when someone is around a Christian and, and they see a Christian marriage, for example, they should walk away having a better view of marriage. Like, wow, wow, I want a marriage like that. If they see you at the workplace, they should say, wow, I want to I work like that person. I want to give like that person. I want to be a neighbor like that person. So in other words, it's not, it's not the salt necessarily that changes it. You enhance whatever the thing you're doing in front of them. So now they have a more biblical view of marriage, a more biblical view of work, a more biblical view of parenting. You enhance the taste of whatever it is that you're doing in front of them. That's what we are called to do. That's what we are called to do. That we are to leave a residue and people are to see something different in us and we are to enhance whatever the arena we are in. And be like, man, I, I'm going to do that differently just because I see that person doing it. Here's the thing, guys. The one thing we know about Salto and all the examples I just gave you is that in order for any of those three things to happen, right, preservation, and then we talked about how it, it, it uh, not only is it preservation, but it, it, it enhances the taste, it causes thirst. In all of those examples, there's proximity necessary. I'm, I'm going to go ahead and say that again because I think somebody missed that, okay? So, so in order for salt to be effective, it has to be close. It has to have proximity. So some of you, you think you're the salt of the earth, and you are in Christian ghettos everywhere you go. You can't be salt if you're not around the meat. You can't stop the decay unless you are close to it. So, so if the only thing you say to your unsaved neighbors is, hello, as your garage closes, you're not salt. You're a jerk. Okay? That, that, that's, that's what we're seeing here, that there needs to be proximity. You need to get close. See, see religious people can't get close. You see, because when you're trying to save yourself and you are trying to earn God's love and God's favor, you think that, okay, in order to be loved, loved by God and, and, and earn God's favor, I can't get around the sinful people. No, no, because they're going to ruin my mojo. They're gonna, it's going to rub off on me and I can't be around them. So what religious people do is they stand in the distance, they judge people's specs because they have a log in their eye, okay? And so when you look at the parable of the, yeah, amen, right? Let's go, right? That's what religious people do. That's why I can't stand them. And that's why Jesus couldn't stand them. Jesus was always with the people who were out there, the pimps and the prostitutes and the tax collectors, and the people who he couldn't stand were the religious people. The people who, in the parable of the, of the Good Samaritan, they're the ones that walk right by the dude. The religious ones are the ones that walk by. So I don't, I'm not, why am I, I going to get down there? I got to stay up here. I'm earning this. I'm doing this. But there needs to be proximity. So Christian parents, if your desire to, to keep your child away from everything I can't put him in that school, and I can't put him in that club, and I can't put him over here, and I can't put him. Listen, listen. If your child's a Christian, you are actually keeping them from their purpose as a Christian. Because they can't be salt unless they're close. That's what we see here. You know, one of the things that I discovered this week is that, uh, and I knew this already because when Lily and I, when we were in, at, at, in college, we got a chance to go to Israel. And when we went to Israel, right next to the Dead Sea, there was this, this group of people that were discovered centuries later. Uh, a few decades ago, they discovered these documents called the Dead Sea Scrolls. And the Dead, the Dead Sea Scrolls were written by these guys, these, these group of men named the Essenes. And the Essenes, the reason why they were so special was because what they did is they found out about Christianity. They found out about the faith and they ran away. And they found a cave and they hid there. 
And no one ever saw them ever again. They all died out there. And it's funny because they describe themselves as a people of light. But how can you be light when there's no darkness? By nature, that's the only way light works. It's light because it's the opposite of darkness. But if you're all around people like you, and when John Stott in his commentary, he said, he's like, I can almost imagine Jesus talking about salt and light. And as he says it, looking over towards the Dead Sea where the Essenes were being salt and light. And that's how we are. We, we stay at a distance. We stay at arm's length and we judge from a distance like, oh my gosh, look at that. And of, oh my gosh, look at who, who does that. Look at this world. It's ridiculous. You're not being a disciple. You're being an Essene. But he doesn't tell us just to be salt. He then tells us to be light. Now, here's what's interesting about light. In order for us to understand that word, we have to understand what it actually meant in Jesus' day. In Jesus' day, a lamp, here's how a lamp worked. It looked almost like a genie bottle, but the top of it was cut open. So there would be wax, and there would be oil, and there would be a wick, and you would light it up. And then what you would do is, in most houses in Jesus' day, they they weren't multi-roomed houses like they are today. It was just a big room. That's what a house was. And what people would do is when they would build the house, almost always they would have one stone, one rock that would like be sticking out. And what you would do is you would put your lamp on that rock and it would light the entire house. And the reason why it would light the entire house is because there weren't rooms. It was all one big room, right? So for teenagers who like your privacy, you better be thankful for what you have, okay? (laughs) So that light would light up the entire room. If that light at any point got wet, or went off, that, that family was done for the night. It was night, this time to go to sleep, guys, we're done. Because the lamp's not working. That's what a light did back then. Now think about this, think about this. If salt is reactive, if, if salt is, is preserving and keeping decay from happening, right? So, so, so salt is more negative, like you're stopping the negative. You're, you're reacting to a negative. Light, on the other hand, is more proactive. See, when you're in a dark room, the easiest way to deal with the dark is not by praying about it. It's by turning the light on. And the moment the light is on, the dark disappears. They can't be in the same place. That's how dark works, right? You hit the light and it's gone. So so if salt is more reactive and more trying to stop a negative thing, a light is more proactive and you're trying to promote a positive thing. That's what it means. So so Jesus is saying that we have a dual role as believers. On the one hand, we are slowing down the effects of sin. On the other hand, we are proclaiming a message of salvation for that sin. That's what light does. Think about about what light does. What light does, if you think about it, it it exposes things, right? Like like when you're sleeping and someone hits the light in the morning, it's like, oh my gosh, like what's going on, right? Or you stand in front of a mirror and there's a bright light and you're like, oh my gosh, I look way worse than what I thought. Like I look... I look great at night, but my gosh, what happened? Right? That's what light does. It, it exposes you. I, I, I told you guys a story uh, a few months ago about how when, when Lily and I, my wife and I, were in, uh, were in, small, were in uh, youth group, we went uh, splunking, which I didn't know what splunking was, but it was cave diving, going into caves, which is so- something only white people do because minorities do not do that. Like, that, that, like no minority does that for fun. <laughs> we're trying to get out of caves, okay? So... So anyways, so, so, so this white youth group, I mean, they, go, they went splunking. I'm like, what's splunking? Oh, we're in a cave. Okay, I guess this is fun. And so we go in there, and, and, and the thing we were asked to do was we had to turn our headlamps off. And so we turn our headlamps off, right? And so Lily and I were dating at the time. I, I, when I told the story the first time, I said it was my father-in-law who was standing next to me. I found out he, he corrected me later. He wasn't that mad. He was mad about what I did, but it wasn't him who was there. It was actually my youth pastor that was standing next to me. And so we turned the headlamps off, and we're all sitting there trying to experience darkness, and I start making out with Lily, like in the middle of this youth trip. <laughs> it's like I couldn't even help it. Like, it's like the light went off. I'm like, oh, my gosh. You know, like, <laughs> that's what dark does, man. That's what darkness does. That's like almost always the, the dumb things you do happen after 10 p.m. Like, right? That's how it is. That's what darkness does. And so every time the light would come up, I'd be, right, I'd be back. I'd be like, man, this is beautiful. I love splunking. <laughs> right? But that's what light does. The moment the light comes off, you, you, on, you expose these things. C.S. Lewis says that the best way to find, figure out if you have roaches in your, in your, in your attic is not by making noise going up the stairs. Is you, you run in quickly, you open the door, and you hit the lights. And then you'll see if there's roach, roaches. Right? That's how you find out if there's roaches in the attic. 
you got to run in there and hit the light, and the light will tell you if there's actually roaches. And so what we have to do, we are called to be light. We are called to expose sin. We are called to, when we walk in, people should feel a difference. There's a story uh, told by Woodrow Wilson, who he died several years ago, and he told the story about how one day he was in a barbershop, and, and there's all these men in this barbershop getting a haircut, and all of a sudden this one gentleman walked in, and he's like, who's that guy? He said, he's like, almost immediately the guy walked in, and there was like a presence about him, and he, he didn't know what it was. And so Literally, the, 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 there was multiple conversations happening at this barbershop, and as this guy walked in, as he starts getting his hair cut, he was just talking to his barber, normal, everyday conversation, and literally he said that the, the whole ambiance of the room changed. Like, people were talking lower. There was like a, a gentle spirit that wasn't there before. And the guy got his hair cut. He walked out, not knowing who he was. And when he left, he asked, he's like, who, who, who's that? And he's like, that's D.L. Moody, the president, the founder of Moody Bible Institute. That guy didn't even know D.L. Moody was D.L. Moody. He didn't even know D.L. Moody was a Christian. And he said the whole, he literally, after D.L. Moody left, he said the whole barbershop, the whole vibe changed. Like people were talking different. They were acting different because D.L. Moody had been there. Guys, that's how we should be influencing the places we go. We, we shouldn't leave places and people will be like, dang, I'm glad they're gone. <laughs> that's not a good look. That's not what we're called to do, Okay. You are to be making places better. That's why a lot of times, and you guys have probably experienced this, if you're sitting here and you're a follower of Jesus, you've been to places and you meet someone and you know they're a Christian before they even say anything. Like, you feel it. Like, there's something in them. There's like a vibe they're giving off. That's the light that we have. But when you hide that light, when you put that under a bushel or a basket, then now no one can experience that because you're too busy trying to hide it. That's what, we're, what we see here. That's what we're navigating here, okay? I can't remember what point I'm on. I was talking, I've been talking so much, I don't even remember what I was talking about. So let me, let me, uh, da, 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 da. does anyone remember where I'm at? I really don't remember where I'm at. Like, I just remember where I'm at in my sermon. I, have I gotten to the second point yet? No, it's still the first point? Okay, so yeah, that's what I'm preaching long. So uh, <laughs> the timer's not up, so get ready. It's gonna go long, guys. Um, so anyways, so we are called to be salt, we, I mean, light. We are called to be light. So part of being light is you expose. You expose sin. But here's the other thing. Here's why light is different from salt. Because part of light, you can do salt and never say a word, right? It could be all behavior. But light requires you to talk. Like that Christian business owner I tell you. He was living great. But what that person needed was not salt. It was light. They needed to know the reason why they're doing what they're doing. At some point, guys, we have to speak up. At some point, we have to say something. And we're going to talk about what that looks like in a little bit, but, but, but we are called to do that. The other thing about light is that light, even though salt is mostly behavior, there's also behavior involved with light. Because if you go to the next slide, he says, in the same way, let your, your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. So we see even in light, there's behavior. Now, here's the thing about the word good. This is really important. There's two Greek words for the word good in the, in the Bible. The first Greek word is the most commonly used one, which is the word kalos. Kalos is something that is good in quality, okay? What's interesting, though, that's not the word that Jesus uses here. That he doesn't use the common word for good. He uses the word agathos, which the word agathos, what it means, is something that's not good in quality, but something that is good in beauty, something that's beautiful. Not in quality, but in beauty. Something that is attractive because of its beauty. So Jesus is saying, as you walk with me, as the, here's the thing, a lot of us, we don't see Jesus as beautiful. We see Jesus as useful. We don't see Jesus as beautiful. Until Jesus becomes beautiful and the, the beauty of the gospel starts to permeate our lives and our souls and our hearts, then and only then can that beauty then be manifested in how we behave. It's a different type of good we're talking about here. It's a beautiful, attractive good that Jesus says we should be living out. That's what it means to be light. But what you see with both, both salt and light, what you see with both of these is that not only does it require proximity, but it requires distinction. We're going to talk about that more in the next point, but, but don't miss that. In other words, if light is too much like darkness, then it's no longer light. If salt becomes defiled, then it's no longer salt. In order for salt to work and light to work, it has to be distinct from the thing it's trying to change. 
But if you're just like the thing you're trying to change, then don't be surprised when it doesn't, that thing doesn't change. Both of them require distinction. Okay? So we're preaching today. Let's keep going. Let's go to the next question, okay? So the next question is this. What must we do, right? Then we said, okay, now that we know what must we do, then the second question is, why don't we do it? Right? That's a pretty good question, I think. Right? We, we, it's clear what Jesus is calling us to do. And so if we know what to do, then why are we not doing it? Well, Jesus actually tells us. Look what it says here in the passage. He says, but in the first, in verse 13, but if salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. Then he says, a town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. So, so here's what Jesus is saying. Here's what Jesus is saying. Look, the question is, if this is what we're called to do, why don't we do it? Jesus tells us the reason why we aren't salt is because we lose our saltiness, and the reason why we aren't light is because we hide our light, okay? So we're going to talk about why that happens, but let me unpack this, 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 this thing for you because there's a lot of words here that, that give meaning to the passage. Jesus says, but if salt loses its saltiness, the word there, lose, it means to lose its flavor, to lose its distinction. It actually, it's interesting because the Jews would, would actually say that salt, when they would use the word salt, it would also, another word for wisdom. So that's why in Colossians, Paul says, have your speech be sprinkled with salt. So essentially what he's saying is, have your speech be sprinkled with wisdom. So when Jesus says that we are losing our saltiness, what he's actually saying is that we are becoming more foolish. Instead of living in the wisdom of the gospel in front of people, we are becoming more and more foolish. That's what we see there. Then the word there, trampled underfoot, it means to despise something, to disdain something. So instead of being a positive uh, uh, impact in your community, in your workplace, in your classroom, in your relationships, you are starting to be hated, disdained. People are stepping over you. Instead of being a change agent, you are just salt on the path. Then if you go to the next verse, next slide, Sorry, yeah, that go, yeah, you go. So he, he talks about how light, is, is, no, actually, go back, go back. Where he talks about the uh, hidden. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. The word hidden there is very important. It, it's, in the, it's in the middle voice. So it's something that you do to yourself. So no one's, no, no one's hiding you, you're hiding yourself. And, and the word hidden literally means to keep something secret for the purpose of protection and safekeeping. So instead of us being open with our faith, we are hiding it. We are keeping a secret to protect it and keep it safe. I don't want, my, I don't want those, those dirty pagans to get my faith defiled. You are hiding it. You are keeping a secret. You are choosing to do that with it. That's what the word there hidden means. No one's doing it to you. You are doing it to yourself. Okay? So the question is, if what Jesus is telling us is that we are salt and light, then why don't we do it? I think there's a few reasons why we don't do it. You know, the first reason why I don't think we are salt and light to the degree that we should be salt and light, it's, it's a decent reason, is because we just don't know what we're doing. We, we lack instruction. Like, no one's ever actually taught us how to do it. So, so you're not doing it because you don't care. You just don't know how to do it. Like, I, no one's ever actually taught me how to be salt and light. And if that's you, then Congratulations, you came on a perfect Sunday because I'm about to tell you how to do it. So that excuse will no longer be relevant. Here, here put my last slide up. Look what it says here. This, this method is a method that I've used for years, and it's been really, really helpful. And it comes from a Christian community church um, in uh, a community Christian church in Naperville. And their pastor, Dave Ferguson, he came up with this, and I just have always found it so helpful. And what he does is this. He, he gives you a method to, to share the gospel. Look, look what he says. He says that in Genesis chapter 12, God says to Abraham, I am going to bless you so that you might be a blessing. So then he takes that verse and says, what does it look like for us to be a blessing in our community, in our neighborhoods, in our school, you know, fill in the blank, in our relationships? He takes the word bless and he uses it as an acronym. And he says, here's how you become a blessing to the people around you. The first one, which is the B, he says is you need to be praying. Listen, guys, that's the easiest step. Be praying for the people in your life 
who don't know Jesus. And I'm not saying like a general prayer, like, Lord, I pray for all the people who don't know you. No, no, no. Like there's certain non-believers that are only in your life and you're the only Christian they know. So if you're not praying for them, nobody's praying for them. We got to pray for them. Look, 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 here. What, I, what I'm going to do throughout these, I'm going to give you examples of things I'm doing. I'm not telling you these things so you can be like, oh, wow, look how great Will is. But I'm telling you these things because I actually came across an article not too long ago that said that the number one indicator, whether or not a church evangelizes or not, is if their senior pastor evangelizes. It says if the senior pastor doesn't do it, it doesn't matter what he says, people aren't going to do it because they follow your example. And so as I tell you stories about what I've done, this is not a, hey, whoop de doo to me. It's I want to show you that I have to do this because this is why we started Tri-Village. This is why we exist. Guys, there are 120,000 people in the Tri-Village region alone that are dying and going to hell. So if we don't do this, who will? Jesus says you are the salt. He doesn't say you're one of the salts or one of the lights. You're the only thing I've left behind. So if we don't do it, who's going to do it? If we don't tell the good news, who's going to tell it? It's got to be us. So when it comes to be praying, I, I, I literally, every time, not every time, most of the time when I pray, I pray for my neighbors. I pray for Mike and Jen on this side. I pray for Mike and Jen on this side. I pray for Linda, who her husband died a year ago across the street. I pray for uh, uh, Nick and Ted and Janine, who live across the street. I, live for, I pray for Joe and Michelle, who are behind me. Here's a crazy story about Joe and Michelle. The reason why Joe and I met is because I, when I first moved to Streamwood, I was scared. I was like, man, we're going to get robbed. Streamwood's the hood. And so, like, so, so, so I, I had my lights on. I left, every, I left every light on, like every light I could possibly lead on. I left it light on. And so and it's funny because we, we got a Xfinity uh, 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 security, and then we got rid of it, and we kept the sign up. And, and, and I'm like, man, I'm keeping that sign up, brother. I'm, I'm not trying to get robbed. And, and, and then, and then here's, here's, here's what Lily's reasoning was. Lily was like, we can't keep the sign up. And I thought she was going to say it's because we're lying. She didn't say that. She's like, I feel like if we keep the sign up, we're going to actually motivate people to rob from us. And I was like, how do you figure that? I said, like, well, someone might be driving around, and they might want a challenge. And I'm like, what is this, Ocean's Eleven? Like, no, like, no one's going to, like, <laughs> wait, wait, what is this, Home Alone? Like, the Wet Bandits? You know what I mean? Like, that's a challenge right there. I'm going to rob their house because they have security. Like, it's not how it works, dude. Anyways, so... So, so, so I would always keep the lights on all over my house. Like every single square inch of my backyard was lit up. And Joe lived in the back. And so he couldn't sleep because of all the light, the light show that I had going on <laughs> in my backyard. And so here's how I met Joe. I, kid, I had met Joe. I kid you not. I'm sitting in my, in, my, in my office at home. I'm working on my sermon. And I see someone walk by into my backyard. And I'm like, what the heck? So I go out there and I look. Joe, without asking, was unscrewing my light bulbs. <laughs> So I'm like, Joe, I didn't even know something. I'm like, who are you, dude? And he's like, oh, I didn't think you were home. And I'm like, I'm like what are you doing? And he's like, oh, I'm your neighbor in the back. He's like, your light is really bothering me. And I, I literally, like, we almost had, like, confrontation. I'm like, dude, you can't be on my property. Like, don't you see the Xfinity sign? Like, you know what I mean? Like, but anyways, but I'm like, you can't be on my property, dude. Like, who are you? And we literally, that's how it started. He left, like, apologizing. I'm angry. It, it started horribly. Like, our relationship started horribly. I'm like, well, at least I know one neighbor I'm not going to reach. Like, I thought it was over. I thought it was done. So the other day, I meet, uh, him and I connected because we, we, were, we were digging a trench in my backyard. And for those of you guys who, who helped me, you guys are men of God because it was ridiculously hard. And he was watching us do it. And then he came up to me and he was asking me about it. And, and then I'm like, hey, man, I just want to apologize for how it all went down. I hadn't turned my light on ever since then. And uh, he was like, no, I, you know, it's fine, whatever. We start talking. He ends up bringing me over to his house. He, he shows me his house. He shows me his tools. We get... Now Joe, not only does he want to visit Tri-Village at some point, he wants me to do his wedding. Like, and it literally, he's like, he's like hey, my, my girlfriend and I, who have lived together for a while, we want to get married. He's like, we don't know any else, anyone else religious. Do you do weddings? And I'm like, yeah. And he's like, all right, cool. Like, let's do it. Like, so that's crazy. But it's because ever since we had that fallout, I didn't even know the dude's name. I was praying. I'm like, Lord, I think I messed that up, but I pray that you give me another opportunity. And I remember he was telling me about all these issues he was wrestling with with his mom and all this stuff. And I gave him an answer, and he was like, dude, like, that was really helpful. He's like, is that what your sermons are like? And I'm like, yeah. He's like, man, I got to go to your church. That was really helpful. So that, that's, that's what we're here for, guys. That, that's not like a rocket science thing. It's just you're going around, and, and you're just praying for people. Because you think, if you're praying, then when the opportunity arises, you'll be ready. But if you're not praying, then you won't be ready, right? It'll come and go, and, and the opportunity will pass. But that's why praying is so important, Okay. 
That's something very easy we can do. The other thing is you need to listen carefully. When you are around that person, you need to listen to them. Don't be talking. Just listen. Just listen. Just hear their stories. Hear their fears. Hear their background. Hear their issues. Just, just listen to them. Just be, a, 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 just be there and, and be open to listen. I'm telling you, that right there will make you so different from most people because most people don't have time to listen to other people. Listening. Another one, this is, I love this one, you just eat with them. Have them over for a meal. We invited Joe and Michelle. They couldn't make it, so we're inviting them again in the next couple weeks to come over to our house to have a meal. There's, nothing, there's no rocket science to that. We're just having a meal with our neighbor. But if you look at Jesus' life, there's actually a book called Meals with Jesus, and the whole book proves that Jesus almost always shares the gospel and reaches people over the context of a meal. There's something about a, a meal. Like, it's like the, 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 the walls are down. People are willing to open up. That's why it's so important. And that's what you and I are called to do, just to have meals with people. Hey, do you want to grab lunch? Hey, you want to get dinner? And actually, Lily and I have noticed that when we have people over our house, like we're having this awesome conversation at the table, and almost immediately when we move from the table to the couch, the conversation like goes down. Like there's something about a table. I don't know how to explain it. Like there's something about fellowship around food, right? Then the next thing you do is you serve them, however you can. In any way, you are serving them. You are focused on them. You're not focused on you. They're not a statistic. They're not a nat notch on your belt so that you can look good at church. Hey, I brought someone, right? It, it's, it's actually a human being that you are seeking to serve. And here's what's crazy. What, what's interesting is that a lot of times, it's not just you serving them, but allowing them to serve you makes a major difference. Like a lot of my neighbors, the reason why I've met, met, I've met them, all, all of them uh, is because I don't know anything about tools. So anytime I need help, I'm like, hey, dude, can you come help me? You know what I mean? And then they come over. And then because they're serving me, now we're able to have these conversations that we otherwise wouldn't have had. That's how I've met Mario. That's how I've met Ted and Nick. That's how I've met Joe in the back. I've met them because I needed something. And then all of a sudden, they're like, hey, man, I get to serve you and you're a pastor? That's cool. Like, I feel like I can. It's not like just a one. It's not like they're my project that I'm trying to fix them. It's, it's a, it's a two-way street. And then the last thing, which is the thing that a lot of us are most excited about, I mean, most nervous about, is we share the gospel. That's the last thing, though. So a lot of us won't do any of the first four because we're terrified of the last one. But the, the better you are in the first four, the easier the last one will be because there's a relationship there. Like, you care about them. So that's just some random person that you just met. Like, it's a relationship has been built, and it makes the last step way easier. Then you, you can share your story. You can share your testimony. You can share what Jesus has done at the cross. But it's so much easier because now you've built a bridge and the bridge can sustain the, the, the weight of that conversation. Makes it totally different. That's why on the right side, I put invest and invite. You guys have heard me say this before, but there's only two things you should be doing. For the people in your life who are not Christians, there's only two phases, two stages that you can be with them in. Either you're currently investing in them or they're ready to be invited. It's the only thing. So some of you feel so guilty because you're like, man, I haven't shared the gospel. I've never led anyone to the Lord. Well, that's, that's, hopefully that'll change. But here's the thing. You should be encouraged because if you're doing any of those first four and you're investing in someone who doesn't know Jesus, you're taking a major step in that direction. You're investing. That's good. You're making progress. There's no guilt in that. You're doing what Jesus is asking you to do. So a lot of us, because we haven't done the inviting, we're like, oh, I'm going to just throw the whole thing out. No, that's not what we're called to do. We can do the rest. And it, it, I don't know about you guys, but when I learned this, it's actually helped me a lot. I can do those things. And then the Lord opens up opportunities when, when they need to be given. I think another reason, so if the first reason is because we lack instruction, I think another reason is that we're intimidated. It's hard, right? It's scary. Like, like what are they going to say? And what I've noticed, and I don't know about you, but the, the more I know the person, like if they're a family member, it's harder to tell a family member about Jesus than it is to tell a total stranger about Jesus. Like the other day when we, Lily and I went to, uh, to, uh, uh, we went to Mexico with our family, my parents took us, on the, on the plane down to Mexico, I talked to someone named Brenda the whole four hours, and the way back, I talked to someone named Isabella, Isabella the whole way back. And I shared the gospel with both of them. I deconstructed Catholicism. Like I was like, it was like a really, like it was really intense. I gave one of them premarital because she was about to be, I gave her like my whole premarital class while we, were, while we were flying. But ever since then, I've been praying for them. But I had to skip all these steps because I only had four hours with them. I couldn't do all this because they weren't people I was ever going to see again. I've been praying for them ever since, but I don't know what's going on with them. I know Isabella's going to be married in a month or so. So I've been praying for her and her marriage, but I, I, don't, know, I don't know if I'm ever going to see her again. But I had to jump through those. But with a lot of these, we can take our time. And so all of a sudden, when you look at it this way, be like, oh, I can do that. That's not intimidating. 
So intimidation is one of the reasons why we don't do it. Another reason why we don't do it is because we're busy. There's so much stuff in our plate. We go from practice to practice and, 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 and dinner to dinner and deadline to deadline and paper to paper and, and test to test, and we don't actually have the time. We don't make time. So busyness is a big one. It's a huge one. Another one, and I kind of mentioned it already, is intolerance. The reason why we're not saving the world is because we're judging the world. Paul actually talks about judgment when he says, you shouldn't judge non-believers. The only people you should be judging are believers. Because what, how are you going to judge a non-believer when that's exactly what they're going to do? How are you going to judge a non-believer for sin when that's the only thing a non-believer can do? How, how are you going to judge a piece of meat for rotting? That's what meat does. Right? So we don't, we don't, we don't save, we don't, we're not salt, we're not light because we're too busy being judges. Okay? Another one, and, and, I, and I think this is really important, is we don't fully believe the significance of the gospel. And here's what I mean. One of the reasons why every week at Tri-Village I end with the gospel and the finished work of Jesus is because many Christians, when they think of the gospel, they only think of the gospel when it comes to salvation. They only think of the gospel for non-believers. Like, oh, I'm a Christian already. I don't need the gospel. I'm done with the gospel. But one of our values at our church is that the gospel is not just the starting line, it's the whole race. I don't grow past the gospel. I grow into a deeper understanding of the gospel. Amen? That's what we're called to be. And so the reason why I can't share the gospel as something valuable is because the gospel is not valuable to me. I don't find my significance in the gospel. I don't find my value in the gospel. I don't find my security in the gospel. I don't find my identity in the gospel. So, of course, I'm not going to tell you about it because it doesn't affect me at all. You can't share what you don't have. So we, we have an insignificant view of the gospel. And you know what the last one is? The last reason why we aren't salt and light? Indifference. You know, any, any counselor worth his salt, now you see, you like what I did that? Yeah. <laughs> any, any counselor worth his salt will, will tell you that a marriage is not in trouble when they hate each other. That's actually a good thing. A marriage is in trouble when they are indifferent. That's when you know a marriage is about to end. When one or both parties are totally indifferent. Like they literally aren't even thinking about the person at all. They can care less what happens to the other person. That's when a marriage is about to end. Indifference. Okay? So think about it. The same thing is true with evangelism. The marriage is true with evangelism. When you are indifferent, when you literally, and, 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 and guys, this, I'm, I'm guilty of this too. Like I, this, this is me too. Sometimes I will look at my neighbor and I literally, I have time to walk over and I'm like, nah. I don't care. I got too many other things to care about. I got too many other things to figure out. Indifference if in any way you are indifferent in this area, go to the Lord and get on your knees immediately. Because it, what it means is, is that your witness life is on its last legs. So, hey, let me say one more thing. I came across this book uh, by Viktor Frankl, and, and Viktor Frankl was a, a Holocaust survivor. He was in the concentration camps. He was a doctor who was put in, in, the, in the concentration camps. And he tells a story about how he, he was a doctor, so he was studying the people while he was in this camp. And he, he wrote a book on the meaning of life. And what was interesting, here's what he said, someone who was in the middle of, this, of the Holocaust. He said, people are most, listen to this, most likely to worship pleasures when they don't have a purpose. So your desire for pleasures and to settle and just be satisfied with pleasures is correlated to your view of purpose. The less purpose you have, the more likely you are to settle for pleasures. That's what he said. Think about it. Jesus gives us a purpose in the Great Commission. It's not the great suggestion. It's the Great Commission. Go and make disciples. Listen, I have, by God's grace, I've been married. By God's grace, I have I've had children. There's nothing more exhilarating. There's nothing more memorable. There's nothing more unforgettable than leading someone to Jesus. I, I literally, I look out in the crowd, and there's people in this room who I've led to Jesus. And I literally, above, my, the de the, above the birth of my daughters, I would choose someone coming to know Jesus. It's, it's, it's what gives you purpose. And when you do it, like, I got to do that again. Like, that was amazing. Look at this quote from, from, from Charles Spurgeon. He says, to be a soul winner is the happiest thing in this world. And with every soul you bring to Jesus Christ, you seem to get a new heaven here upon earth. Listen, when you do it and there's meaning, all of a sudden you're like, well, I got to do that again. 
And now you're not settling for pleasures because you have purpose. The purpose is to make disciples and to tell people about Jesus. So let's go to the three questions. What must we do? We must be salt and light. Why don't we do it? We have numerous reasons why we don't do it. So now that we looked at what must we do, and now that we've looked at why don't we do it, the question is, how can we ever actually do it then, right? Because we, we see what, we, what must we do. It's a really high standard. And then we see what we actually do, which is not that. And there's a major gap between what we should do and what we actually do. And so the question is, can we ever actually do it then? Like, is this, is this a hopeless thing? Like, why is Jesus crushing us? Here's the thing. If you think that you can do it in your own strength, then the answer is a resounding no. You can't do it. That, uh, that's the end of the sermon for you, if that's what you think. But, but here's the thing. The, the reason why we think we can't do it is because we're actually reading the sermon wrong. Like, we're reading the passage in a wrong way. We're, we're reading it, and we're not actually getting the purpose for it, Okay? In this passage, what we actually see is that there are three gospel threads that Jesus weaves throughout the passage that once you understand, it changes the meaning of the passage. And all of a sudden, you're like, wait, wait, I could do this now, but not because of me, but because of Jesus. Look, look the first thread, and this is, this is crazy, Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth. Then he says, you are the light of the world. The, the, the word there, you, in the Greek is emphatic. It's like it's telling you because it's telling you. Like you need to understand that you are those things. Not that you might be those things. Not that you can possibly be those things. You are those things. In other words, Jesus is saying that he doesn't say, hey, uh, if you try really hard, if you reach people, if you reach three people before January, you will be the salt of the earth. If you try, try, try really hard and you, and you invite a neighbor over for dinner, then maybe you will be the light of the world. No, no, no. He's saying you already are those things. When you place your faith in me, I give you my righteousness. And since I am the ultimate salt and I am the ultimate light, when you place your faith in me, you become salt and light. You are those things already. So when he tells us to be salt and light, he's not saying to be something different. He's saying act like you already are and who you already are. And just to prove that, he uses the word Father. If you go to the next, the next slide, he says that your deed, your, they see your good deeds and glorify your Father. Not my Father, because that was Jesus' Father, right? So that would make sense. All of a sudden, in the middle of this sermon, Jesus says, your Father. So, so, so he's not saying, hey, go do a lot of good things. Go reach a lot of people. Go be salt and light, and then maybe God will adopt you. No, no, no. God has already adopted you. God has already accepted you. God has already approved of you. Now go tell people about that. You're not sharing out of your emptiness. You're sharing out of your fullness. I'm not an orphan trying to find a father. I am a son who's been adopted by a father. Come on. That's what we see here. That, that changes everything when you see that. It changes everything. But, but here's what's crazy. Jesus then says it's not just the posi our position. So the first thread is our position in Christ. The second thread is our power in Christ. Here's what's crazy. When Jesus says you are the light of the world, he doesn't say that you're a sun or a star. You're not a self-emanating light. He calls you a little bitty lamp. You know why? Because you're not the source of the light. The power comes from somewhere else. You are a reflection of the light. Okay? So here's what happens. Here's what happens. When we look at this, the reason why it's overwhelming, the reason why we don't think we can do it is because we think it's on us and we think that we're the source and we think we're the ones that have to produce the light. Jesus said, no, no, no. You are not the source of the light. I am the source of the light. In John 8, when Jesus gets up at the Feast of Tabernacles, he says, I am the light of the world. Not you, me. So when you know me, I then make you light. You are a reflection of me. He is the source. The power comes from Jesus. It does not come from us. That's what we see. That's why when you look at the Old Testament, every time Moses goes up to the mountain, he looks at God and he comes back and his face is shining. It tells us in the New Testament that the reason why Moses wears a veil is not for the sake of the people. It was for his own sake because he was embarrassed that the light was going away. But praise be to God in light of 2 Corinthians 4 that now in Jesus it says that the God who created light out of darkness has now put his light in Jesus. And so when we with unveiled face see Jesus, we are transformed from one, glory, one level of glory to another level of glory. And so I can't shine unless I spend time with the light. I got to behold Jesus. The more I see Jesus, the more you will see Jesus in me. But he's the source, not us. 
And in the last thread, there's position, there's power. And the last thread is that there's a people that Jesus is talking about. The word there, you, if you go back to the previous slide, the word there, you, in verse 13 and verse 14, it seems like he's talking to an individual. But if you look at it in Greek, it's actually plural. He's talking to a group of people. Why is that important? Because he is talking to his church. He is talking to his bride. Jesus is looking at us and he's saying, listen, listen, the reason why you can be the salt of the world and the the light of the world is because I was those things for you. Jesus was the ultimate salt of the world. At the end of his life, he was trampled underfoot. Jesus was the ultimate light of the world. At the end of his life, his light went out. Why? Before his bride. For us, for you, for me. See, once you get that, It changes everything because it's a people he's talking to. We're not supposed to do this by ourselves. I need you and you need me. If if you're at the cookout and you need salt for your your corn on the cob and you get the salt shaker and only one grain of salt comes out, that's not going to change the cob. If you're on vacation and you're trying to get darker and there's only one ray of sunlight coming down, you're not going to get dark. I don't need to get dark. Amen. I look good all year round. Anyway, so, so, so what we see So what we see here is that the only way that we can do what Jesus is calling us to do is if we do it together because it's plural. Guys, back to what I said earlier, 120,000 people dying and going to hell without Jesus. We are here for them. We're not here to take Christians from other places. We are here to reach the people that nobody has reached. Those are the people we're called to reach. Every time you hear a sermon on, on evangelism, it's guilt, 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 guilt. You're not doing this. You're not doing that. You're not doing this. When Jesus preaches on evangelism, it's grace, 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 grace. He's not saying go do it. He's told you he's already done it. Now live like it. 